Let's open our Bibles to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, and let's go to the next verse. Verse 17. Do not be surprised if next Lord's Day we go right back to Romans 8.15 and approach it a different way. There's too much there, and I want us to rejoice in it as we put the capstone on our doctrine of salvation. With our adoption as the sons of God. For a few minutes, let's consider the 17th verse and see how it leads us into the Lord's Supper. Because it describes His suffering in the second half of the verse, that we may also be glorified together with Him. Our Lord Jesus Christ suffered when He was here on earth. He suffered on the cross, but He is not suffering now in heaven, and we will not be suffering soon with Him. And as He suffered when He was here, He wants us to suffer by following His holy example. And he sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts so that we're never ashamed, even when we're suffering. I read to you the 17th verse. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Amen and amen. Amen. The Lord in His timing is so far higher than us in our timing of things. It was only a few weeks ago that I was able to preach to you men about the logic of faith. Now, when you come to Romans chapter 8 and verse 17, you have the simplest logic possible that uses the first three laws of logic. The laws of identity, contradiction, and excluded middle. Look at the first four words. Not counting the and. The and is a word that we're going to take up in a moment, but I want you to look at the next four. If children, then heirs. That is a powerful, logical argument based on the definition of terms. The identity of what a child is. And there is no contradiction to this fact because it's a declared statement of the Bible And there is an excluded middle because there's nothing in between a servant and a child or a child and an enemy. We are a child of God. And if we are a child of God, then we are heirs of God. And God is going to give us an inheritance because when God is defining terms, every father is going to do his duty. And the duty of a father is to give an inheritance to his children. And so it's just a connection. It's, It's precious logic. If children, then heirs. The children have been stated in verses 14 through 16, but from being a child of God, we are led by the Holy Spirit in a logical progression. If we're God's children, there's an inheritance coming to us from God. I want the word and for a moment. We have an inspired conjunctive. I usually point out to you the inspired disjunctives, the buts of the Bible, the inspired buts that have a train of thought going, but we've been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. A train of thought, but. Here it's an and. An and is a conjunctive, meaning that it's a coordinating conjunction. It's tying thoughts together and adding to what's been built. What we've had built in Romans 8, 15 through 16 is our adoption as sons. But more than that, and there's something more that follows being adopted. There's more. There's much more. And it's connected by an inspired and. 
that Jehovah God would adopt rebellious enemies to be his children is marvelous enough. But there's more. That not only would he adopt us as children, but we are first-class children. We are children that are in the will and the last testament of God, not those that are left out. And so verse 17 is going to add that to our appreciation of adoption. And. And means there's more. And. How can there be an and to verses 15 and 16? How can there be an and to having been given the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father, that Jehovah is our Father in any language? Twice over, repeated to us, emphasized to us. How can it be better? There is something better. It's what that adoption brings us to. It's what that adoption gets us. It's what Him taking us out of the orphanage of this world and taking us to heaven actually lands us. And it's an eternal inheritance. And He wants us to delight in the glory in that eternal inheritance and the riches of His glory because it should provoke in us praise to Him forever and ever. That's what Ephesians 2, 7 tells us as to why He saved us. That in the ages to come, He might show the riches of His kindness to us. And what does He want from us? A thankful, praising people. Because He's doing it for His glory. The only reason He's adopted you and me is not because there was anything delightful in it for us, though there is plenty. It's for His glory. It's to manifest His glory to the universe. And these 25 verses describe it probably better than any other single place in the Bible. That there's going to be a manifestation of the sons of God and the whole drama of the human existence is moving toward the event of God declaring that you and I are His children to the whole universe as He tells many of them, you are not. Wow! And if children, then heirs. This is simple logic. Praise the Lord. And we've just covered it. The Bible tells us, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Proverbs 19, 14, house and riches are the inheritance of fathers. It's what fathers give in the way of inheritance. And a prudent wife is from the Lord. See, a father can't always give a prudent wife. The Lord's got to give the prudent way for the father to lead the son too. But house and riches are the inheritance of fathers. It's what a father gives. He works all his life. He doesn't spend it all because he wants to give a big chunk to his sons and his children because he loves them. He doesn't want to spend it all. How about the bumper sticker that says we're spending our children's inheritance? Try that by Romans, I mean Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 14. 2 Corinthians 12:14 Paul said the children ought not to lay up for the parents but the parents for the children. You take those 3 verses, I'm just giving you Bible support for the logic. If children, then heirs. Because see, when God gave us the Bible and he told us what a good father would do, he's going to leave an inheritance for his children's children. He's going to leave a house or or something like a house or in place of it, he's going to leave riches. He's going to have saved and deprived himself of spending all his income so that he has a chunk to give to his children. And the Bible supports that. And the logic supports it by the definition of the words. Now there's one weakness here in this analogy. There's a weakness here in this facet. In order to get the inheritance in this world, 
our fathers have to die. It's called the last will and testament of a man, and it's in, and it doesn't come into force, and it doesn't transfer assets from the giver, from the father to the sons, until the father dies. But God cannot die. So it's better than any analogy that he can use in our experience because we get God and his inheritance. How does that sound? What if you could get your father's inheritance and your father forever? But see, no earthly father compares to our heavenly father. We get him and we get his inheritance forever. So the analogy breaks down unless we keep that in mind. Another thing we need to keep in mind as we come to the Lord's table is that a will doesn't go into force until the giver dies. So the Lord wants to take that little part of a covenant, that aspect of a covenant, and teach us in Roman Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, that by means of death, for the transgressions that were under the first covenant, the testator died. But God can't die. So he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for us, that we might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Because Paul would reason in Hebrews chapter 9, a will is of no force while men live, but after they die. And so the Lord Jesus Christ died, and it's by reason of death. It's by means of death is the actual wording from Hebrews 9. You know, some people believe in gospel means. Some people believe in baptismal means. We believe in by means of death. The Lord Jesus Christ died, and that put the covenant into force. Praise the Lord. What does that covenant include? An eternal inheritance. Why? Because if you're a son from Romans 8, 14 through 16, then there's an inheritance. Why? Because son means there's a father. Why? Because a good father is going to leave an inheritance. Praise the Lord. He taught that, and the terms assume that, so the logic forces it. And by the Spirit of God, we have a simple logical equation, if children, then heirs. If God has adopted us, then there's an inheritance coming, because God is the infinitely perfect Father. Every good natural father leaves an inheritance for his children, but God is the perfect Father. So, what else does it say? And if children, then heirs. What a logical connection there, and powerful, and supported by the Scriptures. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. You know, he's left out the word God. It just says, if children. Children of whom? Children of God. If we're children of God, then it makes us heirs. But who are we the heirs of? We're the heirs of God. Therefore, the inheritance that we're given is God-giving. And what has he given us? And that's what we want to consider for a moment. May we ask, what will we inherit Being God's heirs. Now, God cannot die, so we're going to get Him as well. I, I just, the, how do you, how do you make this any better than it is? How much does He own? How much does He have to give? And we get Him. You say you can't have your cake and eat it too. Oh, yes! In the gospel, you can have your cake and eat it too. Absolutely you can. And don't use cake and icing. It's not good enough for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and our inheritance. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and how 
Paul tried to quell the, the fighting and the factions that were in the church of Corinth over their different preachers. They had Peter, they had Apollos, they had Paul, and some said, we have Christ. So there were at least four preacher factions there. They're all fighting about their spiritual gifts as to who's the most important. And here's how Paul brings it, tries to end it all in the third chapter, the last three verses. Therefore, let no man glory in men. Stop your glorying in different preachers and different gifts. For all things are yours. It doesn't matter whether it's Paul, I'm in the next verse, or Apollos, or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All are yours. Stop fighting about whether Apollos is yours or whether Peter is yours. They're all yours. Do you realize that those illustrious three men, Peter, Paul, Apollos, were all servants of the Lord Jesus Christ given to the church to be their servants? All things are yours, including all these preachers, including Christ, including the world, including life including death. You own it all because God's giving it all to you. You're his children, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God. And ye are Christ, and Christ is God's. Stop fighting about these little pieces down here. It's all yours. You say, I want another witness on that one. Okay, Revelation 21.7. Revelation 21.7. Oh, Lord, thank you. John begins to close out the book of the Revelation, closing out our Bibles, closing out the New Testament. And he comes to Revelation chapter 21. And in the first verse, he saw a new heaven and a new earth. And he says in verse 7, the Alpha and Omega is speaking, He that overcometh, shall inherit all things. Now, how big of an inheritance in an estate is that? You know, you're usually typed up by trustees. You get a list of the assets of the estate. You know, we've got a 1960 Plymouth out in the family barn that's been kept there faithfully by Dad to give to you someday. There's $4,500 in the bank in a savings account. There's some old chairs that he bought after World War II when he was discharged and came home. There's an old house that has the small round toilets. Some of you have punished me at break time, and that's okay. I deserved it. You have a list of the assets. What does the Bible say about the Lord? What he's going to give us? He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, because God does not die to give us all that he has. We'll have them both. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Now remember, in 1 John 3 this morning, now are we the sons of God. Now we have the first four phases of salvation about our sonship. But there's another phase coming, and that's what's intended here in this verse. He shall be my son in the fullest display and manifestation of it to the universe and in his possession of my assets. Heirs of God. What does it mean? It means what God has, he gives to us. 
because we're his sons, because that's what a good father does, so much so that we can argue logically from the words, if children, then heirs. And if heirs, heirs of God, first of all. What else can we look at? Does the Bible tell us when Jesus Christ stands and has all the nations assembled before him and puts the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left, that he's going to say to the sheep on his right hand, come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Did Jesus say, I go to prepare a place for you? Was the Lamb of God going to add anything to that kingdom? Absolutely. There's no need of a son in that kingdom because the Lamb is the glory of the whole place. That is pre- That has been a, a preparing and it's being prepared by the Lord Jesus Christ for us. This is the hope of the believer. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God. What else do we get? Now the promises were made to Abraham and his seed. He saith not into seeds as of many, but as of one into thy seed, which is Christ. And if he be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Whatever Abraham was looking for is the friend of God. He looked for a city which hath foundations. He looked for a heavenly country. He was seeking those things because God had promised him a heavenly country, defeating all of his enemies, a numerous seed, and God's blessing. That's ours. It's part of the inheritance of all things. Heirs of God. We're an heir of God as much as Abraham ever was. Because we're in Christ, who is the true seed of Abraham. Our inheritance depends on the predestinating purpose of God. And we have received an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. Ephesians 1.11 The word predestination, which most pulpits don't want to use, is four times in the Bible in two passages. Romans 8, Ephesians 1. In Both places, in all four uses, it's describing our adoption and our inheritance. Keep that in mind. This adoption and the inheritance that we get because of it, God has planned from the very, very beginning. In case you're doubting some of these things, the Lord feared that you would doubt them. Your father did not know that you would trust him if he just promised these things. You know where I'm headed? Where would you go if you were going to back up the statement I'm making? Because your father knew that everyone else you know in your life makes promises and can't keep them, and he made a promise, what did he do to add some further credence to his promise, even though he's a God that cannot lie? He swore with an oath. And so in Hebrews 6.17, it tells us that we have... I want you to get there so you can see it. Verse 16 tells us, Men verily swear by the greater. And an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. When a man takes an oath and puts his left hand in the Bible and his right hand raised to heaven and says, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, that is swearing with the highest authority known on earth, and it's, it adds Credibility to a man's statements. Verse 17, wherein God, using that same line of reasoning, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, 
Who are the heirs of promise? They are the children of God. If heirs, then children. I'm backing up through the same logical progression. Backwards. If heirs, then children. The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things. First of all, God can't lie. Second of all, he swore with an oath that this is sure. This is real. This will happen. He is promising these things. We're his children by Jesus Christ saving us, and he has an eternal inheritance waiting for us. And he's confirmed it by swearing, and since he could swear by no other, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee. He didn't know how to reach out for anyone else because there was no one else higher than God to confirm his word. So he swore by himself. So that you, the heir, the child, could know that these things are coming, and he put this in writing. This is what needs to be preached. Not the seven ways to get yourself out of financial bondage that Joel Osteen is going to preach tonight. Your financial bondage is going to end when you... Everyone that hears him preach ought to go out in the parking lot and run a hose from their exhaust in through a window. That's the way to get rid of financial bondage. Go to heaven. Your rich father is going to pay off all your debts. But they don't want to hear that. They want to hear about how they can get rid of Visa calling them every week. They want to hear about how they can get rid of the IRS calling them every month. Thank you, Lord, that we see a few things better than that. And we can reach for a riches and glory that's very different. But when it says heirs of God, I'm just trying to tell you a few things that you're going to get. It's everything. The world, life, death, it's all yours. It's what the Bible says. There's nothing left out. And in case you were doubting, he swore about it. And it's permanent. It's reserved in heaven for you. It fadeth not away. It's not going to change. Everything else, you know, I speak respectfully about the disrespectful. When a son knows that his father has promised him the Ferrari, and the Ferrari is new, the son has a temptation, I speak respectfully of the disrespectful, for the father to hurry up and pass on so that the will can be opened by the trustees and the son can get his hands on that Ferrari. But our God doesn't die and we get everything. And it doesn't fade away. What he has in heaven right now are things that we cannot see, which 2 Corinthians 4 tells us are eternal. They last forever. Nothing is going to rust. There's going to be no moths to corrupt. There's going to be no thieves to break through and steal. And that is where our hearts ought to be. That ought to be the treasure of our lives is where we're going. Not that we're going up in the medical profession. Not that we're going up in the food business. Not that we're going up in any other line of work. Our treasure and our hearts should be on our Father, His adoption of us through Jesus Christ and the eternal inheritance that's coming. Why do you want to go up in your company? And I'm not saying it's wrong in its proper place. Why do you want to go up in your company? I'm going to tell you why. You want another buck an hour. Why does another buck an hour grip you so much when there's going to be infinite riches for eternity? You know, when you get that extra buck an hour, do you know what happens to your FICA assessment? Your state 
income tax assessment, your federal assessment. Do you, do you know what happens when you get that buck an hour? You go home with your dime. So you get all worked up about a dime and you forget heaven. Brethren, this is a problem for all of us every day of our lives. And he that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. If we would come to grips with the reality of this, and God has sworn to make it as real as possible, it'll change our lives. The things of this life will not matter as much, and we will never be ashamed. I don't care if I'm poor in this world, because my rich daddy has given me everything he's got. And my rich daddy is Abba Father. In two languages, our God and our Father. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. He owns everything and He's going to give us everything. Well, it says joint heirs with Christ. It says joint heirs with Christ because it says if children. If children, then heirs. If children and if heirs, then we have to be joint heirs with Christ because Jesus is the Son of God. And if we are children, the sons of God, verse 14 of chapter 8, then we have to be joint heirs with the other Son of God. We're all joint heirs because we're all sons of God. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God because we're the children of God. Joint heirs with Christ because Christ is the child of God and has already received his inheritance. It is logical. It is scriptural. It is theological. It is truth. It is hidden truth. It is secret wisdom. It is the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. God predestinated you by grace to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to get the preeminent glory in heaven because he's the firstborn of the family. And we'll give him that place. And we love to give him that place because he got all the rest of us there by leaving his place and coming to die for us. But what else do we get? With being joint heirs with Jesus Christ, we shall be like him. Whatever he is like now, we're going to be like him. And the Apostle John would reason that because we know that when we shall see him, we shall be like him. Well, now where in the world are we taught that? But Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15, he is the first fruits of them that slept. Glorification is taught right here of what's going to happen to us when our bodies are redeemed from the power of the grave like His was 2,000 years ago. We're going to look like the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to have glorified bodies like His. There's, There's one thing that we're going to get as being a joint heir with Jesus Christ. He's got His glorified body. John thought it was somewhat different than the one he had seen here on earth. I speak as a fool from Revelation chapter 1. You're going to have that body. We're a joint heir with the Son of God. I know you're saying it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's all grace. It's all grace. It's hidden wisdom. It's the deep things of God. And they're revealed to us by the Spirit. No man can know the things of a man, save the Spirit of man that is in him. No man can know the things of God, save the Spirit of God. And he's revealing those things to us in the Bible. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. What he looks like, we're going to look like. Now what I read in Revelation 1 is pretty impressive. When I look in the mirror, I don't see anything impressive. Do you agree? Something is going to change. And you know what it says? 
we shall be changed. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Where is Jesus right now? Has he been received up into glory? Does this verse say something about glory? Does it say, joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together? Did he receive great glory and honor in Hebrews chapter 2 and crowned in heaven? Have I ever preached to you about he ascended up on high? Have I ever preached to you about the coronation of Jesus Christ? Are you a king and a priest in your right? Has he made you a king and a priest? Are you going to be crowned? You absolutely are. Are you going to be in the army of heaven? Right beside him and behind him. Because he's the firstborn. We want him going into battle first. He's the oldest of us all. He's the first fruits. But we're going to be right there. Is he going to judge angels? Are all principalities and powers subject to him? Is every angel subject to the Lord Jesus Christ right now? You're going to judge those angels with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us why we should never take an affair, a difference, and a, a disagreement in our body to the courts of this world because we're going to judge angels. Do you know it says that or do I need to show it to you? We're going to judge angels. How can we judge angels? Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. All principalities and powers being subject to the Lord Jesus Christ were heirs with Him. They're our servants. And I do them no disrespect. They look into these matters and it blows their minds. What Jesus Christ has done for the church and what God has given to us and not to them. Their fallen comrades and former peers and colleagues will spend eternity in hell. But we will spend eternity in heaven as the sons of God. Look at Revelation chapter 19 and see the Lord Jesus Christ on his white horse. If we ever have a painting behind our baptistry, it's going to be Jesus Christ. Okay. If we ever have a painting behind our baptistry, it's not going to be Jesus in a manger, and it's not going to be Jesus on a cross. It's going to be Jesus on his white horse. But for those of you that are listening in radio land, we don't have a baptistry. So there's not going to be a painting behind it. Because we don't paint pictures of Jesus. Because we don't know what he looks like. But we shall see him as he is. We know that he has an appearance like Revelation 1 and Revelation 19. And that's the image that we want in our minds of him at the present time. In Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Jesus Christ, Faithful and True, he's called the Word of God in verse 13. He's sitting on a white horse. That's verse 11. But look at verse 14. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Praise the Lord. We get excited about the white horse picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 19.11. But the Lord Jesus Christ has justified us. That's why we have white linen on. And we are joint heirs with Him. That's why we're in His army and riding right beside Him and behind Him on our white horses. Okay, come back to Revelation chapter 2 and see what you have in your right hand. Revelation chapter 2. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Verse 26. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end. Why don't they use that text as an invitational text? 
in an Arminian church. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. You're going to have power over the nations? And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. Do you understand the language there, who it's talking about? It's first of all not talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, but you, brethren. A rod of iron over the nations that will be assembled before him. You will stand in the perfect righteousness of... You said, I couldn't judge another man. I'm the wickedest man in the human race. How in the world could I judge another? Because you're going to be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and you will be unashamed of righteousness and holiness because you'll be filled with it and you'll be standing in the vindictive judgment of God pouring out his wine press of fury and wrath on the workers of iniquity. And you will know it's all of grace because we're going to sing amazing grace for eternity. But you're going to be there. Look at what it says. Have you ever read it the right way? Do you know what we usually go into Revelation 2, 27, 4? We usually go there to prove that Jesus Christ is already a king reigning on a throne with a rod of iron and dashing the nations in pieces. That's why we go there to dispel the heresy of premillennialism. That Jesus is not yet a king. He hasn't yet been given his kingdom. He absolutely has been given his kingdom because he said, even as I received past tense of my father. But brethren, if you overcome, if you're an overcomer in the way you live, that's showing the evidence that you're a son of God. If a son of God, then an heir. If an heir, then a joint heir with Jesus Christ. If a joint heir with Jesus Christ, you're going to be wielding a rod of iron yourself. You say, well, where will I be sitting? The Lord wanted you to know. It's in chapter 3. Revelation 3.21. If you were, if you want a spiritual exercise this afternoon, look up the seven churches of Asia and read what God promises to those that overcome. Blow your mind. He doesn't say to those that believe, to those that invite me into their heart, those that accept me as their personal Savior, those that come forward in a Billy Graham crusade, he says those that overcome. So we want to be overcomers. What's getting you down? Be an overcomer. What's getting you worked up? Be an overcomer. Here it is, 321. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. We usually go to this verse to prove that Jesus Christ already has his kingdom. Paul's directing us to this verse because it's part of our inheritance as joint heirs with Jesus Christ to live and reign with him forever. Back to Romans 8. Praise the Lord. What else could he say to If children, then heirs. Children of whom makes us heirs of that same party? Heirs of God. Well, if we're children of God and heirs, there is a brother of ours that is already a son of God, and he has inherited things already. What is our relationship going to be with him? Joint heirs with Christ. What has he been given? Jesus saw in prophecy in Psalm 16, there are pleasures forevermore at his right hand. He's inherited those. Pleasures forevermore. You have never had a perfect day. Some of you want every day to be perfect. Some of us. Let's just go ahead and cut through that fog. 
We don't like things going wrong. But you know what? It's like in heaven. Every day is perfect. And the pleasures are forevermore. And they're pleasures that God calls pleasure. They're not the pleasures of sin for a season. The frustrating, disappointing, empty, vain pleasures of sin for a season. They're eternal pleasures. He's already inherited them. We're going to join right in with them. If so be that we suffer with them. Now we can't suffer with them. He's already died on the cross. It's not referring to that suffering. We can't do that. We don't participate in our own suffering in order to earn salvation. He did that for us in the cross. We suffer with him in kind, not in time. We don't suffer with him in time because he's already gone before us by 2,000 years. We suffer with him in kind. He suffered according to the will of God, and that's what we do. Look at 1 Peter 4.16. Whatever God calls us to do, that's what we do. We want to suffer as a Christian. Is that suffering with him? What does Christian mean? A follower of Jesus Christ. He suffered as Christ. We suffer as his followers. That's suffering with him. He suffered for obeying God. We suffer for obeying God. Look at what it says. First Peter 4, 16. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Remember, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts so that we should never be ashamed of anything like this. But let him glorify God on this behalf. If you get to suffer as a Christian, which means you're following Jesus Christ in obeying God, glory in that opportunity. Glory if somebody rails on you and calls you names and tries to hurt you for your religious convictions. Because that's what they did to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's how you suffer with Him. And if we suffer with Him, it's the evidence of our inheritance. We're going to be glorified together with Him. That suffering that we go through now is a token indication of God's blessing on us, like it was on Jesus Christ, and it is a token indication of God's judgment on those persecuting us, just like it was on those who persecuted Jesus Christ. This is from Philippians chapter 1 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It is an evident token of perdition. It is the judgment of God coming on men when they persecute the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ. We suffer in kind. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to close this up so that we can go to the Lord's table. There's, there's much that can be said about suffering. Suffering is our duty. The apostles went to every church that they started. And in Acts chapter 14, as Paul reversed his course and headed back to Antioch of Syria, he exhorted the disciples that through much tribulation, we enter into the kingdom of heaven. Suffering is something that is a blessing. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. It's an evidence. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. Look at 1 Peter 2. Let me give you an example of what you're going to have to go do tomorrow. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, You take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. Did you notice the word suffering in there? There's suffering. It's verses 18 through 20. You're enduring grief wrongfully. 
Men are treating you in the workplace in a way that they should not, especially masters. But you submit to it anyway out of conscience toward God. Because that is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. Look at verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called. Called where? In Romans 8, 17. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. His example of how he dealt with suffering. How did he deal? Who did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Praise the Lord. That is how you do it. If you'll suffer with him, you're going to be glorified together with him. My brethren, the great mystery of godliness is that God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And if we suffer with him like this, suffering on the job doesn't mean anything. It only means something if you're suffering on the job for the cause of Jesus Christ and out of conscience toward God. You choose to do things because God wants you to do them regardless of what men do to you. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ did. It got so tough with him that in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what men were going to do to him, knowing the false trial, knowing every accuser that they were going to bring and how their stories were not going to jive, he knew every bit of that, of what was coming. He said, Father, if it be couple, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. He said, Abba, Father. Mark 14, 36. Abba, Father. Father in two languages. Father repeated twice for emphasis of affection, trust, and loyalty. Father, Father, Abba, Father. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's the example he gave us. On the job... In your marriage, with your parents, with every source of trouble and affliction and suffering and persecution that arises in your life, Jesus Christ did it to please God. Jesus Christ didn't revile back when he was reviled. That's to call someone names. Jesus Christ did not threaten. He submitted himself to a father that's able to judge better. And brethren, have you seen and heard what happened to Jerusalem for not knowing the time of their visitation? His father honored his son and pummeled, destroyed, and pulverized that nation. Leave all judgment into his hands. And anyone that wants to, including my second son, can remind me of what I'm saying right now afterwards because of a recent event the Lord's brought into my life through him that's caused me to not be quite the Christian I should be. If you suffer wrongfully, enduring grief, you'll also be glorified together with him. He brings it right down to what we're going to do tomorrow morning.
on our jobs. Let's do what is thankworthy. Let us endure grief wrongfully from any source. If you're in a relationship that's not what it should be in your home, consider it an opportunity for you to suffer as a Christian by doing what is right without threatening, without reviling. You should glorify God on the behalf of the opportunity He has given you to submit to suffering and to do it cheerfully as the Lord Jesus Christ did for us, which we now remember in the way that he asked us to remember it at his table, at his supper. Amen. Amen.